Uh, hello? Uh, yes, Commander. It is Captain Escamilla. Yes, sir. Okay, sir. Over and out. Uh, hi, Tumble listeners. Uh, we're still here on our summer break, and I'm embarking on another magical adventure. This time, the expert shrinkologists at Tumble HQ shaped up and shrunk me down so I can ride on a microscopic submarine to explore the human brain. We're making our way up to the cranium, but while we're journeying, here's some great Tumble episodes about the brain for you. We hope you enjoy. Avast, ye swabs, let's dive into our first episode. Do dreams have meaning? That's right, dive, dive. Oh no, it's an antibody. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the meaning of dreams. Ooh, does this mean I get to share the weird dream I had last night? Like I was walking down the hall, but it wasn't really the hall. It was like... (laughs) No, no, no. Stop and hold on to that for a bit. Because we're going to dreamland. We'll find out how humans have found meaning in dreams for thousands of years and how science has changed that forever. All right, let's get dreaming. Today's question comes from our listener, Abby. Hi, my name is Abby. I'm eight years old. And my question is, do dreams have meanings? I think that sometimes they do. Abby even has an idea for how scientists can learn about dreams' meanings. I think that scientists can find out by doing CAT scans on people. She's not talking about putting cats on people's faces while they're sleeping, right? That sounds like a terrible idea. (laughs) She's talking about using a machine to look inside people's brains as they dream. So let's ask our listeners, what do you think? Do dreams have meanings? And how do you think scientists would find out? Think about it. We'll be right back with a neuroscientist as our guide into dreamland. All right, we got our PJs, we got our pillows, and we're ready to dream. To answer Abby's question, I called up Siddhartha Ribeiro, a Brazilian neuroscientist. He studied the science and the history of dreams. I would say that I have very personal reasons and very strong dream reasons for why I am a dream researcher. Dream reasons? What, what is a dream reason? It's a reason that comes to you in a dream, of course. <laughs> Siddhartha told me he's made some big life decisions based on his dreams. Wow. So I, I guess dreams clearly have a lot of meaning for him. But what about dreams in general? How did he answer Abby's question? I think she, she gave a fantastic answer. They can have meaning. What does he mean they can have meaning? Like, what, what does that mean? And what do dreams mean? When do they mean something and when do they not? What do we mean when we say mean? Wait, wait, stop. Let's take a deep breath, relax, and let's begin our trip into dreamland. Where are we? And why is it so hazy around us? And what is this beautiful music that I wrote? We've traveled back in time into the history of dreamland at the very beginning of dreams. Scientists believe that dreaming evolved way before humans. Dreaming is quite old. Most mammals have some sort of dreaming. 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen pets dream. So like dogs that look like they're chasing squirrels while they're lying down and cats that are just like knocking things off of counters. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) Well, scientists have actually found evidence that all kinds of creatures are probably dreamers. Other animals like birds and reptiles and the octopus and even the fruit fly can have something like the kind of sleep that we have when we have very strong dreaming. What what does a fruit fly dream about? (laughs) Just like a giant rotting peach. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So beautiful. (laughs) Humans are the only animals that are able to share our dreams, which is how we know about dreams that were dreamed hundreds or even thousands of years ago. When we look into the literature, the books that were written in antiquity, in ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt, we'll see that dreams played a very important role in society, in private life, but also in public life. People in ancient civilizations wrote books about gods and goddesses visiting them in their dreams and telling them what to do. Yeah, I mean, in ancient stories, it seems like dreams are just like another place to ask if you should go on the quest or find out how to conquer the monster or just like learn how to do laundry or something. (laughs) Exactly. Many cultures, even today, believe that to dream is to visit a spirit world. It's an experience of going to another world that supposedly existed forever, where you can find solutions for problems and inspiration for overcoming challenges. So people thought of dreaming as being able to actually like go to another place. That's kind of incredible, like, like a magical nighttime place that we all get to go. Yes, but now it's time to travel to the age of modern science, where we'll figure out how science changed the meaning of dreams forever. When the scientific revolution happened in the 16th and 17th century, scientists weren't too interested in studying sleep or dreams. I mean, they didn't believe in the magic of dreamland? Absolutely not. And sleep seemed really boring. People just assumed that nothing was going on while we were lying in bed for hours. But that would change. There were two moments. The first moment was at the end of the 19th century. That's when Dr. Sigmund Freud published a book called The Interpretation of Dreams. Oh, I've read that book, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Freud is like the most famous psychologist of all time, and he was obsessed with dreams. Yes, psychologists are like the doctors of the mind. Freud's patients would come and visit him in his office often laying down over some couch or something, and they are freely remembering. They're just telling the dream and telling everything that comes to their mind. Freud believed that dreams were a window into people's wishes and fears that they didn't even know they had. So he believed dreams definitely had meaning. He would have definitely said yes to Abby's question. But other scientists were skeptical of Freud and his colleagues. The science of their time didn't like it because they thought that this was bogus and that it was not quite scientific. Yeah, I mean, he would just sort of like listen and observe his patients, but didn't really go through much of like a a testing process. Yeah, and that's what the scientists said. They were not really measuring anything. It was more like an art of listening and making sense. It had certain rules, but the scientists at the time didn't think they were good enough. Okay, so if the most famous psychologist ever wasn't good enough, what did scientists think is good enough? 
Well, they wanted to see evidence, not interpretation. Data, not dream reports. So 20 years after Freud died, they got what they were looking for. Because in 1953, scientists discovered the existence of REM sleep. REM sleep? Is that when you fall asleep to the band REM? No, it stands for rapid eye movement. It was discovered by a sleep scientist who was using his eight-year-old son as a guinea pig in his sleep lab. The boy would sleep hooked up to a machine that recorded his brain waves. And a few hours into the night, his father noticed that there was a whole lot of activity going on in his son's brain and in his eyes. The eyes moved a lot, but the body was very relaxed. Wait, so he was fast asleep, but his eyes were moving as he slept. Yes. During REM, your eyes go back and forth like you're watching a very fast tennis match. The sleep scientist was super surprised by this. He began to study it with other scientists. They found that everyone does this at night. They realized this was a specific sleep state that would occur at least four or five times per night. That sounds like a huge breakthrough, but like, what does REM have to do with dreaming? The discovery of REM sleep was a big step in understanding where dreams come from and when they happen. And then in 1957, pretty much the same group of researchers discovered that when you wake people up from those moments, they report dreams, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time. This study showed that dreams were happening in the brain. And this was a big thing because now there was something very concrete and very objective, something that you could measure and determine and that really satisfied the rigor of science. Well, so now that scientists had a way to measure dreaming, how did they figure out dream meanings? Like, can you measure that? Like, this dream was a 10-point meaningful. <laughs> Let's move just a few years later in dreamland, when the psychology and biology of dreaming come together. In the 1960s and 70s, a psychologist named David Folks studied dreams in children and how they change as they age. He would get the same children to come to his laboratory every year, a few days a year, for a long period, for like 10 years or more. Starting at age three, the children would sleep in the lab and then say whatever they dreamed about. Like Freud's patients would? Kind of, but without analyzing it. Folks found that preschoolers had very simple dreams about themselves or animals. But as they got older, their dreams involved more people and the stories got more complicated. Young children often have dreams that are more like a single scene or a few scenes. But when they become teenagers, dreams tend to become like a movie, like with many parts. So he thought that like preschooler dreams are like a page from a picture book, but teenage dreams are like a bad movie where you get to the end and you're like... What was that? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Folks thought that kids had to learn to dream and that dreams didn't have much meaning or complexity until they got older. But new research might change that idea. But recently, some researchers have shown if you record dreams, not in the laboratory, but if you go to the children's home to record the dreams, they're richer. They're more interesting. Huh. Well, that's really interesting. But, like, why would that be? Well, sleeping and dreaming in a lab is not the same as sleeping and dreaming in your own bed. For starters, you're in an unfamiliar place, 
And second of all, your head is actually wired to a machine to monitor your brain waves. It's glued to your head, so it's not the most comfortable thing. Yeah, it would be hard to sleep normally with a bunch of wires glued to my head. <laughs> that would definitely affect your dreams too, right? <laughs> I'd probably dream that there were lots of wires in my head. <laughs> <laughs> There's evidence that people's brains are actually half awake while they're sleeping in sleep labs. So now researchers are experimenting with different types of equipment that can work in homes and training parents to record their children's dream reports. And you can then revisit those experiments and like do them again, measure again, but in a more safe and comfy setting. And that tends to make dreams richer, more complex, more interesting, more meaningful. More meaningful. So, so what do dreams mean? We got to get down to this. <laughs> Each dream means something different to the dreamer. But Siddhartha told me there's a general rule about when dreams have meaning. When we have a lot of expectation, this is when dreams tend to be most meaningful. In other words, when we're looking forward to something or have a big question that we're trying to answer, our dreams can help prepare us or find answers. But when we are going through like a boring part of life and nothing really new is happening, sometimes the dreams seem complete nonsense. So if we don't have anything really going on, that's when you get the weird dreams that just don't make any sense or the ones that are super mundane where you're just like having breakfast. <laughs> Right. And we know this by listening to people's dreams, like Freud did, but also by using scientific tools to measure dreams, like the neuroscientists who study the brain itself. So it all comes together. But how can we understand the meaning of our own dreams? Well, luckily Siddhartha is sending us off from dreamland with a guide to finding meaning in our own dreams in just three easy steps. First of all, talk about dreams before you go to sleep. Share the expectation that you may have. You can make a wish for what you'd like to dream about, like going to visit a friend or solving a problem. It could set a direction for your dream. That's super cool. Then, when you wake up, this is the most critical thing. Don't move. Stay quiet in bed and write it down. Write down everything you can remember. Once you're done, share your dream with others. And then start telling your folks what was the dream about. Tell that to different people. And then you probably will remember more details as you start telling the dreams. Friends and family may help you figure out what the dream means as you talk more and more about it. Siddhartha recommends doing these steps after every dream. It's like collecting the pieces of a puzzle. If you have many pieces, you kind of figure out the whole thing. Well, that was a pretty crazy adventure into dreamland now that I'm back in awake land. <laughs> I think we learned a lot on our trip through the history of dreamland. Not least of all, the fact that everyone can explore and make their own discoveries in their own dreamlands every single night. Listeners, let us know if you start keeping a dream diary like Siddhartha suggests, or if you have more questions about sleep and dreams. Send them to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear them. Sweet dreams, everybody. <laughs> oh, uh, sweet synapses. Looks like I fell asleep at the helm. 
Oh my gosh, it looks like the radio system broke upon impact. I can't understand a word that he's saying. I sure hope this next episode gets me out of this mess. Introducing Why Words, How We Learn Language. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Have you ever wondered how you learned a language? How do you understand what I'm saying right now? Today, we're talking with a scientist who is piecing together the puzzle of language. We've been thinking about language a lot since we moved to Barcelona, Spain. The locals here all speak two languages, Spanish and a regional language called Catalan. I'm taking classes to learn Spanish, and our three-year-old son is learning Catalan in school. People here keep saying that kids are like sponges. Esponja, esponja. I learned that in Catalan from presentations at school. <laughs> But maybe our listeners have experienced something like this if they speak many languages already. Maybe their parents speak to them in different languages. Or maybe they're speaking a different language at school than they speak at home. And I'll bet they speak that language at school pretty darn well. The process of learning and speaking a new language has always just blown my mind. I just don't get it. That's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to Evan Kidd, an Australian scientist who's studying language in the Netherlands. The best language learners are children. And that's really remarkable, right? Because children come into the world without any knowledge of what a language should be like. Oh, that brings up a really big question. How do we know what language even is? We're supposed to be understanding these random sounds I'm making as words with meaning? Like, why isn't it just herb blurb 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 It seems something that's so effortless to us and comes so easily. We often don't realize that it's incredibly complex. Yeah, I mean, I never think about how I managed to master English as a child, but I feel like I'm pretty much native speaker level. <laughs> you are, Marshall. You are. <laughs> Maybe if you're eight or nine and you start learning a language, you start realizing that, first of all, there's lots of memory involved. You've got to memorize lots and lots of words. And a language like English has tens of thousands of words. Then you've got the more complicated things, which is the grammars. So you have to be able to order words in a way that is meaningful for everyone else who speaks that language so they can understand what you're saying. Just like el coche rojo is how you say the red car in Spanish, but you would never say the car red in English. Right, and that's because the rules of Spanish and English are different, as I'm learning. <laughs> Keep it up. No other animal has a communicative system as complex as language. Because language is unique to humans, and it's such a huge part of our lives, scientists have long wondered why we developed language as a species, and how our brains learn it so well. They're working on a couple of theories or ideas about it. So some people have argued that because it's so complex, um, that we actually are born with lots of information about language in our brains. So just as we're born with hair and legs and hands... The idea is that our brain comes packaged with language, ready to sprout when we're old enough. But Evan thinks that there's a big problem with that theory. 
So if you uh, take a human baby that's born to say uh, two French speaking parents, and that family moves to um, let's say China, that baby will learn Chinese just as well as children whose parents and grandparents and great grandparents have lived in China all their lives. So it wouldn't be like there's a gene for speaking French and a gene for speaking Chinese, like it can't be that specific because they're really different languages. It has to be a gene for learning all the ways in which languages can, um, can be different. Some sort of one-size-fits-all language gene. Or maybe just something that says, do this instead of grunting. <laughs> what does that mean? I was just agreeing with you in herbal. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you know, I've been taking herbal classes. I'm working on my certification. I had no idea. It's really <laughs> it's hard really language. It's really, really hard language, herbal. <laughs> well, so can I tell you about the other theory of how we learn language? <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Because children, for instance have a long childhood, they hear lots and lots of examples of, of speech all the time, and then what they're doing as they're hearing this is constantly changing their understanding of language to a point that once they become about four or five, they're pretty good users of the language. That makes sense. So it doesn't matter which language, if you're exposed to it since you're born, you're eventually going to understand and speak it perfectly. That's the theory that Evan is trying to test, along with many other scientists. It's very difficult for us to study the whole process. So language, why, is not really the best research question. Right. The question has to be more specific, like why words? The way that we approach it is by um, looking at different parts of the problem, say looking at the sound or the grammar or even word learning, and then trying to um, come up with a complete picture. Evan's question is about how kids learn and understand grammar or how words go together in a certain order. So I'm interested in uh, how, for instance, um, they might understand that the mouse chase the cat is very different from the cat chase the mouse. Yeah, because why would, I mean, we could just assume, like, why would a mouse do that? Yeah, yeah. And it's not just about a cat and mouse chase or vice versa. Grammar is about learning the rules of how the language works, and the rules can be very complicated. So Evan came up with experiments to look inside the language learner's mind. In my lab, we do um, we use two types of techniques. So one of them is called eye tracking. Eye tracking? What do eyes have to do with language? When you're hearing language and that language um, describes an event that you can see, it's impossible for the eyes not to follow the language, if that makes sense. Uh, so if I say cat, you're not going to look at the mouse. Yeah, it would be really hard. It's not natural. So if you were a kid in Evan's eye tracking experiment, you'll go and sit in front of a computer screen that had two pictures, one of a cat chasing a mouse and another of a mouse chasing a cat. Then you'll hear the sentence, the cat chases the mouse. And then we'll have a little camera that's at the bottom of the screen, and that records where the child is looking as they're hearing language. And so if you can understand the sentence, you'd automatically look at the picture of the cat chasing the mouse. If we can match up where they're looking with the sentence that they're hearing, then we can say something about how they understand the sentence as they're hearing it. That's interesting, but didn't Evan say that he had two different techniques? What we also do is we actually measure brain activity of um, very young infants as well, because actually children are learning about language right from 
pretty much when they're in the womb. Wait, so we're learning language before we're even born? Yeah, isn't that crazy? We can hear our mother's voice and we start hearing sounds from the outside world when we're in her belly. That's the beginning of language. And as soon as we're born, we hear it more and more. Mostly like, oh, who's a pretty baby? Who's a pretty baby? So we use this technique um, where we can record uh, their brain activity in response to sounds and sentences and words and things like that. And that uh, lets us understand or lets that enables us to understand what they might know before they can even speak. Okay, so what does that experiment actually look like? Sure, well, it looks very space age. So you put a cap on their heads, uh, like it looks like a swimming cap. And then in the cap are all these little holes. And in the holes, you put these uh, electrodes. Electrodes are flat metal discs that make contact with the baby's heads. Evan uses them to record changes in the baby's brain activity as he plays them sounds and sentences. So you can tell if babies actually recognize words or just think it's more grown-up gibberish. Exactly. That's really neat. So what has Evan learned? And so using uh, this particular technique, what we've found is that around nine months of age, some children are really good at finding those words and some children aren't so good at finding those words, but they're going to catch up pretty soon later. So an advanced nine-month-old can recognize the words, what would make you stop crying? I need to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Those nine-month-olds wouldn't be able to answer you, though. That's too bad. Bit by bit, Evan's experiments are adding pieces of knowledge to that big question, why we have language and how we learn it. We know, for instance, that they may learn, um, start to learn words when they're about one year of age, and then they start to combine words a little bit after that, and then they, their language gets more and more complex as they get older. How that happens, the kinds of processes that underlie these, these achievements are still something of a mystery. Evan still wants to know how children take everything that they hear and learn to make sentences with ideas that can be pretty complicated. So basically how they learn to talk like a normal human. Which I'm still struggling with in Spanish. (laughs) Speaking of, why is it so much harder for adults to learn a new language than kids? You've learned your first language really well, so you're 11 or 12 or something like that. Because you've learned that language so well, it makes it a little bit more difficult to learn another language. Basically, if you're comfortable with the rules and words of just one language, like I am, it's really hard to adapt to new words and new rules. So the earlier you learn a second or third or fourth language, the better. Well, I'm going to just keep studying because even though it's harder, you can still learn languages later in life. But when it comes to studying language itself... Evan says the process is not so different from being a biologist or a chemist. So we do things like we have theories and we make predictions or hypotheses on the basis of those theories and then we try to test them. But there's one big difference. Languages don't grow in labs. They come from different places in different cultures. We have many different languages and then it's sometimes unclear what theories might say about one language over the other but at the same time it's really fun because you can use different languages maybe to test theories as well you have a whole bunch of what you might think of as natural experiments in the world that means there will always be more to explore 
everybody we're back but it looks like i'm a bit lost i swear we were at the medulla oblongata a minute ago but oh oh wait now our communication system is back online commander do you remember which way we were going uh, maybe this next episode can help us out next up the magic memory molecule oh wait i, I think i see it over there Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're asking how human memory works. How is it that we can remember tiny details from years past for our entire lives? We'll talk to a scientist who's searching for the answer within a tiny molecule. Listener Fiona wants to know how we remember. I remember things. I just don't know how. It's an amazing question. Like, maybe if you knew how, you could, like, design your brain to be better. (laughs) (laughs) Build in maybe, like, a few extra, like, memory chips, upgrade the RAM. Well, Fiona's older brother, Liam, was also fascinated by her question. Before we were able to get to the question, he tried to answer it for her in a podcast recording he made for school. Scientists are working on how we remember things, so we don't have the full answer. What we do have is parts of the answer. Liam is a natural science podcaster. I know. It took us decades to work up to this, and I think Liam's in fourth grade. (laughs) So we're going to hear more from his podcast later, but we found a scientist to help answer Fiona's question. So the first thing I have to say, Fiona, that is a very, very deep and difficult question to answer, and no one really knows the answer. That's Andre Fenton. He's a neurobiologist, which means he studies the biology of the brain. It's his job to find out how our minds work. So the first thing you have to realize is that memories are a record of your experience. It means that your brain first has to have the experience and a record of that experience is stored in the brain and that's what we call memory, the record of the experience. Uh, That makes sense. You have to have something to remember before you can make a memory. But what is a memory anyway? Here's how Liam answered that question. Storing a memory involves chemical changes in the nerve cells of the brain or in the substances that carry messages across the tiny gaps between the nerve cells. These gaps are called synapses. That's basically what Andre told me, too. A human brain has something like 80 to 100 uh, billion neurons. Well, that's a lot of neurons, or as Liam called them, nerve cells. Each neuron makes connections to other neurons at things called synapses, and each neuron on average connects to something like 10,000 
uh, other neurons. Neurons kind of look like trees with a thin trunk and branches sticking out all over, and they connect with each other in a thick forest of chemical intersections called synapses. There happen to be something like a quadrillion. That's a very, very large number of these synapses. When you have an experience, a pattern of electrical activity lights up your neurons. So something that actually happens to you breaks down into electrical impulses in the brain. Exactly, our memory is created by neurons connecting through synapses. When those neurons become active together, the junction or the synapse between those neurons gets stronger or weaker in a pattern, and that's the memory. There's a lot to learn about how the human memory works. But Andre wants to know just one thing: how the memory persists. What does that mean? Does that mean like it won't stop asking for cookies? <laughs> it means when we're seventy years old, how do we still remember something that happened to us when we were five? Where's that memory stored, and how? That's the crazy thing, right? For us to store memories. We have to make a physical record somehow, but it's not like a record player or a piece of paper. But the belief is that there's something physically that must happen, and so we've been working on trying to understand and discover what that physical thing is. Wow! So he's looking for what physically makes a memory, but how do you find that? Where could that be? That's where the scientific process comes in. It's like a roadmap for science. Andre described it like setting off on a journey. Early on in the journey, what we had to do was、um, pick something that we could study that looked like it could be a memory. So we had to start with a theory. In the 1950s, scientists came up with a theory that when neurons connect. Something happens that makes it more likely that they'll become active together again. That activity is what lets us hold on to our experiences. And so that seemed to be the natural place to start. Scientists zeroed in on the hippocampus, and that's the part of the brain that's most important for memory. So don't lose it. <laughs> and a tip. I mean, <laughs> it's just really cool. <laughs> It's also the part of the brain that's most important for memory in rats, and that's why scientists study the mechanics of the brain using rats as a model for humans. So we studied how hippocampus、um, changed after you caused hippocampal neurons to become active together. What they found was a set of mysterious molecules. No one knew which role each one played. They were just kind of hanging out there. Neuroscientists each claimed their own molecule to study. And so, in some sense, every experimenter has championed, which means they are promoting their molecule as the crucial molecule or as an important molecule in the process of memory. Andre paired up with a biochemist named Todd Sachter, who had chosen a molecule called PKM Zeta. That's a great name, band name. Call it. We're PKM Zeta. 
It's like a synth pop. <laughs> you think that's what they would play? <laughs> PKM Zeta. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Andre and the scientist he was collaborating with had their reasons to think that PKM Zeta is important to forming memories. But to prove it, they had to show that without it, you can't make memories. That's the first thing that we did because it seemed easy. The easiest thing to do, which is to erase a memory. It's easy to erase a memory. Like, can they pick a specific one? Like that time I farted in Spanish class in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> We could actually design another molecule, a chemical, a drug, in fact, that would specifically interfere with PKM Zeta in a very particular way so that it couldn't do its normal job. They set up an experiment where the rat was placed on a circular disc. Part of the disc was electrified and gave the rats a small shock. All the rats learned quickly to avoid it. Kind of like I learned to avoid that electrified bathroom we have. <laughs> it only took me five or six times. <laughs> now you, you never go there. <laughs> and nobody goes there. <laughs> Why do we even have that? <laughs> mm, came with the house. <laughs> Anyhow, they gave a group of the rats the PKM Zeta blocking drug. So if PKM Zeta was important, the rats who had taken the drug would not remember that that part of the disc was to be avoided. And that's what we observed. That's crazy. So just blocking this one molecule and the rat's entire memory of the experience disappeared? Yep. The rats had no idea what happened, but Andre was pretty excited. Yes, it was extremely exciting because I didn't think it would work. Problem solved. They found the thing. That's what they were looking for. They found the magic memory molecule. Well, here's the thing. Even though every time Andre ran the experiment, the rats lost their memories, he couldn't be sure that PKM Zeta was the reason why. Well, maybe all this molecule does is give the rat a headache, or maybe it makes the rat feel sick. And so we had to, over years, do other experiments to prove to ourselves that there weren't these dumb, uninteresting explanations for why the rats lost their memory. It took three years of experiments to convince themselves that they were right. That's sort of one of the, I think, wonderful things about science and also one of the terrible things about science. There really are very few moments when you say, oh, I know I have the answer. So there's no, like, screaming, Eureka, I've got it, in the lab. No. When Andre and his collaborator finally shared the results... Reporters called it a breakthrough. But they'd really been at it for years. Yeah, and a lot of scientists disagreed with what they discovered. So Andre heard a lot of this. You know, you must have done something wrong because it couldn't possibly be that way. But that's actually normal in the scientific process. Almost no one ever is able to discover something that is universally recognized as a discovery. That's because a big part of the scientific process is to have other scientists review and critique your work. Scientists have to see a lot of really good evidence over a very long period of time to accept any new discovery. That's why scientific facts 
or scientific knowledge tends to be very high quality knowledge. So people didn't just accept PKM Zeta as the magical mystery molecule right away, though that would be their first album. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't accepted by a long shot. Almost immediately, other scientists began doing their own experiments on PKM Zeta. A lot of them copied Andre and his collaborators' experiments and got the same results. But others did things differently. They said, let's use a different drug or a completely different approach. One group of scientists bred a mouse that could not make PKM Zeta. So it shouldn't ever have a memory? Right. And what they found? Well, let's just say it didn't look good for PKM Zeta. That mouse could learn and remember. And it looked like it could learn and remember very well, in fact, normally. Wait, what? They were wrong? You can be completely missing PKM Zeta in your brain and still have a functioning memory. So what then? Did Andre just give up? No. Because now he had an even more exciting mystery to solve. How could both experiments be right? Could PKM Zeta be both crucial to making memories and also not necessary? Those two things seem illogical to be both true. You're right, that makes literally no sense. <laughs> well, Andre and his collaborator had to think creatively. Maybe if PKM Zeta is missing, another molecule steps up and fills in. And in fact, that's what we ended up doing experiments to find out, that there's in some sense a backup mechanism. Oh, so it's like, it's kind of like an understudy, like, hey, I know all the lines. I can be Hamlet. <laughs> Basically, Andre and his collaborator started studying the mice that couldn't make PKM Zeta. They found that these mice had much higher levels of another molecule called iota. When they developed a drug to block iota, voila, these mice couldn't remember either. <laughs> Just a bunch of confused mice <laughs> running around. I mean, yay, science. <laughs> Sorry, mice. <laughs> and when the primary mechanism, PKM Zeta, is unavailable, this secondary mechanism seems to work. And so that's what we were able to discover. Wow, so if those other meddling scientists hadn't proved them wrong the first time, they wouldn't have discovered what was really going on. Yeah, so everyone hates to be wrong, even Andre, but in the grand scheme of science, it's necessary. It's even helpful. You know, what I like about science is that it's not based on people just saying, I think this is right and this is wrong. It's based on evidence and it changes as the evidence changes. Yeah, I like that about science too. And scientists are always finding more evidence to revise and refine their understanding of the truth. Science is actually a way of looking at the world, a way of organizing information, and ultimately a way of making arguments about what we know and what we don't know that are strongly based on physical, measured evidence, not just opinion, not just authority. So is that it? Like, we answered Fiona's question. 
This is how we remember things. It's PKM Zeta. End of story. Period. <laughs> no, it's it's just a piece of the puzzle, as Liam says. We still have a long way to go to find the full answer. What we know now is that a molecule called PKM Zeta plays a role in memory formation, and that it has a backup. That really doesn't tell you how the memories are even organized and how they're stored. We don't know how much PKM Zeta is made. We don't know where it goes. We don't know how long it lasts there. We don't know what it's doing there. Oh man, that's a lot of work to do. Definitely, but it's worth it. We'll be able to understand the brain better. And if we can understand the brain better, we'll be able to understand all brain functions and dysfunctions in a fundamental way, in a better way. Thank you, Commander. I'm starting to remember the way. Thanks for that episode. The center is in my sights, and the colors are unimaginable. Gosh, I wish you all could see this. The inside of the human brain is amazing. But before we reach our destination, let's consider, why do colors exist? Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Look around you. You're probably surrounded by color right now. But have you ever wondered why colors exist? Well, that's a mind-blowing question for you. Colors just exist. Let's not think about it. Well, we're going to think about it. You'll be surprised to find out how colors are like the ultimate optical illusion. And it might change the way you think about the colors you see. Right after this. So if you're listening at home, feel free to grab your crayons, colored pencils, paint, or whatever colorful craft things you have. Or just look at the colorful objects around you, and we'll get started with a question from our listener, Phoebe. I'm Phoebe. I'm seven years old. And my question is, why does color exist in the world? So wait, why does color exist? Like, why is it? I I have no idea. That's just too massive to think about. So you don't have a theory for this? Are you kidding? No way. No (laughs) idea. This is the first time I've even thought about why. (laughs) Well, maybe our listeners actually have some ideas. Why do you think color exists in the world? And how do you think scientists study color? Think about it because we'll be back with a scientist who's also an artist to look at color from every angle of its existence. To answer Phoebe's question, I talked to a neuroscientist named Bevel Conway. Bevel studies how the brain works, but he got interested in color when his artist aunt gave him his first set of watercolors. And I remember hours spent just squeezing the tubes of paint out and mixing up big puddles and just watching them like a kind of movie of the colors blending and merging one into the next. As Bevel experimented with his colors, all sorts of questions sprung into his mind, and they stuck with him. I've always been obsessed, fascinated by 
that process of color and how color works and what color does for us and why we have color and whether or not you see color the same way I see color. Yeah, I think we often take color for granted because it's just always there. Like that thing, it's blue and that's it. <laughs> when you think about it, it really is kind of crazy. Like what, what is it? It almost feels like an impossible question, but Bevel has a short answer and a long answer to it. Here's the short answer. Because it's really, really useful. Okay, that's short. But what does that even mean? Like, how is color useful? Here's where the long answer comes in. Actually, two of them. There's two ways of answering the question. One is, like, you could answer the question, why does color exist in the world, by just asking, in terms of physics, why is there spectral energy in the world? <laughs> wow, what's spectral energy? Sounds like something a superhero would definitely use. Totally. Spectral energy is basically rainbow power. And what a rainbow is, is when white light goes through a prism and is split into all the different wavelengths that comprise daylight. You can think of a wavelength as the ripples you make in a pool of water when you tap it with your finger. The quicker you tap, the faster the ripples go out and the closer they are together. When you break them up into a rainbow, the different wavelengths appear to us to have different colors. Okay, so the waves have different lengths or distances between the ripples. So that's what makes colors different from each other? Exactly. Each wavelength corresponds to a different color or shade of color. And we can't see the wavelengths themselves. They're invisible to us until they're broken up in some way. Like in a rainbow. Right. But get this. The colors we see aren't all the colors that exist in the world. And that's because our eyes just aren't big enough to see them. Every part in your eye that catches light from a given part out in the world... There's not enough space at that location to have a detector for all the thousands of colors you can see. What? So there are more colors out there that we, like, can't even imagine because of our eyes? There are probably an infinite number more colors out there in the world. Okay, so you're saying, most important thing here, our coloring boxes could be larger if only our eyes were. <laughs> yes, and different organisms see color in different ways, which brings us to Bevel's second answer to Phoebe's question. My guess is that your question isn't about the physics and chemistry, but more about why has evolution made organisms so that they are sensitive to this spectral energy, to color information? Why do we have color information? In other words, why can we see color? Okay, so it sounds like we're already going down much more of a rabbit hole. 100%. Especially when you consider that it's not just things with eyes that can see color. It turns out that color information, seeing color, is something almost every organism on the planet can do. Even mushrooms and bacteria and plants, they're able to see colors. Whoa, okay, so mushrooms can see colors. How does that work? Plants, fungi, and other eyeless organisms don't see like we do, but they can sense color because it's important to their own survival. Because plants' leaves are green, the green light absorbs certain energy 
from the colors from the wavelengths in the light. The green leaves are getting green wavelengths of light, but there are many different shades of light in those wavelengths, and plants have these built-in sensors to detect that kind of light. And so, a plant that's got these color vision detectors in it can actually tell whether or not it's growing underneath another plant or not, just by the difference in color that it receives. Okay, so like whether it's shady or whether they have lots of light to grow towards, which plants definitely need to know to survive. Exactly. Proving Bevel's point, the color is useful for all organisms on Earth. So that's definitely a different way to think about why color exists for everyone. But what about us? Like, I don't really think about color just in terms of survival, unless it's like what color a taco is. <laughs> totally. Our brains take color to the next level because, unlike plants, we can actually think about it, and that's what Bevel is most interested in: how we think. So, color is like a very simple way of teasing apart, of pulling apart that process of thinking. So, wait, what? What does color have to do with the process of thinking? Well, a thought about what color something is is one of the simplest thoughts you can have. So if I ask you what's the color of a banana, and you're not even looking at one now, you can tell me that it's yellow. You've just had a thought. When you describe the color of something, you're creating a picture in your mind. You build that picture out of things you've seen in the past, and your past experiences are a big part of what make up your thoughts. I get it. Like if you ask me what color a banana is, and I'd literally never seen a banana before. I really wouldn't know what to tell you. I'd have no banana thoughts. Exactly. So that's why Bevel thinks of color as not just existing as a physical thing. Color is also based on our experience. Color depends on your past experiences and the, the other sort of factors surrounding what's happening when you look at something. Okay, so that's really wild. He's saying how we see color depends on what's happening as we look at it. Yes, and that's why sometimes different people see colors differently. This is the optical illusion part. You can make one physical thing look different colors depending on the context. The same object can look different colors. What does he mean by that? Well, remember when I had a jacket that I thought was purple and you thought was blue? I mean, thought it was blue. <laughs> well, I definitely thought it was a purple jacket when I bought it, and I didn't realize that you saw it as blue until I'd asked one time if you'd seen my purple jacket, and you were like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> you mean your blue jacket? And no, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Eventually, after looking at it enough, I saw how you could have thought of it as blue. But the point is, we describe the same jacket as different colors. What makes something look colored is not just what's happening in the eye, but it's what's happening in the eye and how your brains are unconsciously interpreting what that is. So when he says that our brains unconsciously interpret what we're seeing, he means that we don't realize why we see things the way we see them. Yeah, but the fact that I saw my jacket as a different color than you. Points to the idea that I had a different experience of that color leading up to seeing the jacket. So your experience is sort of colored by your memories, 
And we know that that's true for every thought, every kind of thought you have. Oh, man, if we can't agree on colors, what even is reality? I know. And that's why Bevel did a study to understand how we identify and describe colors. He and his colleagues showed people a big slate of color chips that looked like a wall of paint chips that you'll see at a paint store. Here's how the experiment worked. If I pick one of those colors, but I don't show you which one I've picked, and I just say, I've picked the red one, you'll go to the same wall of color chips and you'll pick exactly the same chip that I said when I said red. But if I said, I've picked the green one, you're all over the map. You could pick a chip that I might think is quite blue. So that's kind of like our experience with the jacket. Yeah, and like I said, blue and purple are pretty close. So there's this interesting kind of parallel in how we name colors. And that turns out to be true for all languages, all people around the world. All people around the world are worse at talking about greens and blues than they are talking about reds and oranges and yellows. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've never mistaken your yellow raincoat for orange. Yeah, and you wouldn't because it helps that yellow is like a classic color for a raincoat. Definitely. But what does Bevel mean by saying that people are worse at talking about greens and blues in purples? We think that that's probably because the stuff that we want to talk about in the world are reds and oranges and yellows. Really? We want to talk about faces. We want to talk about apples. We want to talk about squirrels. Yeah, I mean, I always want to talk about squirrels. You do. (laughs) Bevel found this theory to be true across many different languages that he tested. And he thinks we're better at describing warm colors because they're more useful colors. And so when you want to make signs to be really attention-grabbing, you use red. Yeah, so like stop signs, fire trucks, um, warning signs that you're going the wrong way on the highway. All red. Yeah, but the things you don't want to be too distracting, like exit signs on the highway or recycling bins, are greens and blues. So does that mean that warm colors are inherently more attention-grabbing for us? Or are we born to see red more clearly than blue? I think really what's going on is that our evolution has endowed us, has given us this system that's incredibly adaptive. In other words, how we think about color has evolved around our experience of color in our environment. When you grow up in a world that's filled with warm-colored things that happen to be the sorts of things that you care about, then that visual system develops ways of talking about warm colors better than it does talking about cool colors. And that could all change given different things to look at. But I could imagine that You know, we might artificially create a world where all the important stuff is in cool colors, and then we might find a very different kind of visual system. Wait, so we could literally change how we see if we change the colors of the things that are important to us? Yeah, and we actually can do that, because think about paint. No other animals go about in their world painting stuff to turn it from one color into another color. That's just something we do. That's something that humans do. Relatively speaking, it wasn't too long ago that we created chemical or industrial ways of making our own colors. I promise you, probably pretty much everywhere you look around you, there is something that some human has colored. 
And that means that we have changed what we call our visual diet. We've changed what we actually look at as a result of our own industrial activities, which means that we're sort of changing the demands. We're changing what we want our visual systems to do. Oh, so we're kind of evolving with our colors. Will we be able to recognize millennial pink just as easily as we recognize firetruck red? Possibly, because that's what happened with blue. There are actually very few things in nature that are truly blue, even blueberries. They're kind of purple. So in very old languages, pre-industrial languages, turns out they don't even have a word for blue. They don't bother because there's just no blue objects in the world. And we're starting to see with our own world the invention of these new kinds of colors. And now all of a sudden we need new kinds of words for these colors because they can be used now to do interesting, important, useful things. Oh, so if we're changing the colors that exist in the world, we're having new color experiences, new color thoughts, and maybe even changing how we see color. That's, that's like huge. Well, do you see colors differently now than when we started the episode? I mean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at like this bowl now and I'm thinking about the invisible wavelengths and how my brain is interpreting them through my eyes and how I'm thinking this bowl is like totally brown. But you and me might not see it as brown because you think it's purple. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that bowl, but... Let's just say we have a lot of new color information to take in. And now when I look at color, I think about like sort of all the portals it could open up to light, to life, to our brains, and to our futures. That's definitely all of existence. How do you see colors differently than you did at the start of the show? Maybe try Bevel's paint chip experiment. With friends or family, try pointing out different colors and describing them to each other. Are you using the same words to describe them? Are some colors harder to describe than others? Let us know what you find out. And if you've drawn a picture or done some art during this episode, take a picture of it and send it to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to see it. Uh-huh. Yep. 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 Commander, we made it. We reached the center of the brain. Agreed, sir. I also hope they don't mind that we've crashed into their brain. Hopefully it's not making their, like, senses go crazy. Um, yes, sir. Over and out. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's road trip and our collection of episodes that hopefully will put your mind to work. We hope your summer is going just as strong as ours. If you want more episodes this summer, you can pledge just $1 a month on Patreon for our collection of bonus episodes. Thanks to all the scientists we met on this road trip. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is our editor and made the episode art. Eric Kuhn engineered and mixed the original episodes. Lindsay Patterson wrote the original episodes. Our interns, Elliot Hajaj and Grace Ingram, wrote the submarine interludes to this episode. And Elliot Hajaj did all the submarine sound effects and edited the interludes. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music you heard in this episode. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more summer episodes and more stories of science discovery.
Thanks so much for listening to that episode. And now that it's over, we've got some birthday shoutouts to give to our supporters on Patreon. Happy birthday, Chester Beck, on July 22nd. You are mom and dad's favorite carbon-based life form. Joy, keep moving through the world with joy and questions. And happy birthday on July 25th. Mackenzie, happy seventh birthday to you on July 28th, nature-loving city girl. Mommy, daddy, Kylie, and Ralph love you so much. James Francis, happy birthday on July 29th. Keep working hard. We know you'll be a great scientist when you grow up. Xander, happy birthday on July 30th. Daddy and mommy love you. Happy birthday to Jack on July 30th as well, with love from mom and dad. Dearmud, happy birthday on July 31st. You are the most fun traveling companion. Mom and dad love you loads. Ivy, Mama, Pappy, and Olive love you. They're amazing little podcaster. Keep asking questions and being interested in the world, and happy birthday on August 1st. Bridger, your dad loves you and all the adventures you guys go on. Have a great birthday on August 2nd. Elam, your family loves you and admires your curiosity. They always enjoy and look forward to exploring this world with you. So happy birthday on August 2nd. Clara Gilmartin, mom and dad love you and they love to see how excited you are about science, especially poop science. You and Lindsay both. Happy birthday on August 2nd. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast.